Please turn in your bulletin to pages 7 and 8 for the sermon text today. People of God, I encourage you to um, relish and rejoice in these words. First coming from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 25. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And then from the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And finally, from Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. These are the very words of God. Let's pray as we come to God's word together. Father, we thank you for the glorious salvation that we have in Christ. We thank you for its breadth and width, for the hope that you give us, Lord, that you have come to restore all things to yourself. Lord, what a mighty redemption. What a comprehensive redemption. 
And we, by your grace, are a part of that. We pray that as we study this perspective, as we consider what you're going to do, that we can see better who we are, what we must be about in this world, and what it all means. May we do this for your glory and honor. Amen. My dad uh, played a lot of golf uh, growing up, and I played a whole lot of golf up till about uh, age 12. He's a good 12-year-old golfer, bad 14-year-old golfer, 15 and really bad 62-year-old golfer. Um, But what was always interesting as a kid learning from my dad, um, who eventually uh, uh, shot his age, you know, that's a big accomplishment, um, and it was all the things I had to think about, you know, the grip, I had to make sure my grip was right, I had to make sure where my head was, I had to make sure how my arm did and, and how low the club head was and how I'm to follow through and how, what my hips are, like, it seemed like dozens of things. You know, all the time as you're trying to think of them all, especially as a little kid. And just, and of course, if you overthink it, you don't do it. And the object is to do it so often that your body just begins to do the right thing every time. And I would liken that to the perspectives that we're to maintain concerning the latter days, the, the final consummation, the kingdom of God. And what it means to be a part of the kingdom, how the kingdom functions. It's like there's so many different things, it seems like, to remember that it's this but not that, this but not that, okay? And the more, though, we study these things, we get them to be a part of our lives, then the more we'll act it out, live it out in our lives, like a good golf swing. So I'm going to try to lay out some of those perspectives this morning. Um, books and books and books, of course, uh, thousands of books are written on these, this subject, and we're just going to uh, get some of the essence of it as, as we uh, seek to open this up. The first thing that's very obvious from these texts, I hope you see, is the final restoration of all things, right? That, that's repeated, isn't it, again and again. Uh, in Acts 3, the restoring all things, and the emphasis in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 that to unite all things in him, heaven and on earth, to reconcile all things in Colossians, whether in heaven and on earth. You just can't miss that. And in case you thought it didn't involve the earth, we have this majestic section in Romans 8 that depicts the earth personifies the earth, really, as this person who is groaning and is looking on tiptoe, looking with eager eye for this appearance of the children of God. If you had a picture of the earth and a crown on top, some of you have seen this in our uh, sessions in Sunday school about it, but if you had a, a earth and a crown on top, the crown represents man, And when man fell, the crack went all the way through the earth. If you want to liken it to a train, when the engine went off the tracks into the ravine, it took all of creation with it, okay? And therefore, 
the whole creation will not be put back on the track until the engine is put back on the track, until man is fully redeemed. And that's what Romans 8 lays out before us, that all of creation cannot wait for the appearance of mankind redeemed. So at that point, it says, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. We've likened it into the, in the past of an eagle seen in a, uh, a cage, which I saw one time, and feeling the weight and beauty of this eagle as he opened his wings and you felt the power of it. And then you think, what would that be for him to take off? And that's the picture of this creation in bondage, amazing and glorious and beautiful, breathtaking, but still in bondage. What's it going to be when it takes off? Or a, a man crippled and in a wheelchair, that's creation. What's it going to be when it jumps out of the wheelchair and starts running out in the field? You know, Who can imagine what this creation is going to become? You can almost liken it to a, a, a fish that is out of the water. Because creation's made to be under the oversight of people who want to glorify God. It's to be under the dominion and in fellowship, in a sense, with us who are given up to God's will. And it's no presently now under a curse because we are under a curse. And so it's as though creation is flopping on the deck of a, a boat. And it's always a cool thing. I love to see when you, uh, if you're, uh, you know, you're catching and you're putting back that you, when you let that fish go, how it, how it looks of just, just was breathing and jumping around, flopping, doing nothing, and then suddenly he hits the water and he's where he belongs. We're going to see creation like that one day. We see creation hit the water again, just where it's supposed to be, the whole of creation. And isn't it interesting also how he emphasizes in Romans 8 our bodies. So our bodies are not left behind in this. It is not that God is removing our humanity in his salvation. Some other religions virtually have that. The end of, of life means nirvana, which is supposed to be nirvana, is the dissolving of yourself into the oneness of everything. You're gone, really. You're just gone. Your humanity is obliterated. Your body doesn't count anymore. Christianity says, no, the body is glorious. It's who we are. It's part. Of, it's a vital part of who we are. It's just as much a part of us as our spirit. And so he can actually say in this passage that we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons... So that's a strange language because we think, I thought I was adopted. I thought I already was a son. And now you're telling me I'm yet to be adopted. Well, it means obviously the fruition and final completion and consummation of that adoption. Entering into the final glory and, uh, and point of that adoption in full restoration of your, your humanity. What is that? The redemption of our bodies. That's what he says. We're, we're waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. It's in a vital constitution of that is the redemption of our bodies. He's talking about the resurrection. And that's why, as you've heard us say again and again, 
Scripture does not put its hope in going to heaven. It simply doesn't. There are a few places, I think of only two, Philippians 1 and 2 Corinthians 5, that talk anything about going to be with Jesus. That's wonderful. And especially as we may be suffering in this world in many different ways, either from sickness or persecution, and enduring just the simple curse of sin in this world, there is a relief in going to heaven. But it's a terrible thing, as I've heard at many funerals, for the person, the the preacher, to talk only about so-and-so is in heaven now. And we're just so glad. It's all over. She's at rest. It's done. She's in heaven. No, (laughs) you want to say. Because those in heaven are not at rest. They're restless, we, we learned in our study in Revelation. They're asking how long. How long before you will vindicate your glory, Lord Jesus? How long will it be before we are restored completely when our bodies will be raised up? It is not good for a human being to be divided body and soul. It is not good in Scripture. And and God will not let it stay that way. He will restore our bodies in that last day. And so to make the point... um, A lot of people say things like, heaven is a place, here's the title of a book, heaven is a place on earth. The point being that the intermediate state, this in-between place where my body is in the grave and my spirit is there, is not where I'm headed. That's just temporary. Some will say, I'm just passing through heaven, that is. (laughs) Passing through heaven to be brought back with Jesus to the restored earth. Or some put it like this. It's the first leg of a round trip. Okay? The first leg of a round trip. We go to be we go to heaven to be with Jesus, but our spirits are separated from our body. Jesus brings that spirit back when he comes to renew the earth and our bodies are raised and restored. So that our final condition is a restored earth. And so it is, uh, one, one person puts it this way, heaven is not my home. Just to make the point that this is our home. It's to be renewed. And in a deep sense, we can say, as we just sang, this is my father's world and it will always be my father's world. And my father is going to redeem this world completely and rescue it from everything that plagues it. This is indeed my Father's world. And so He is not removing our humanity. He is repairing and recovering our humanity. And so, in this way, Jesus, where Adam failed to renew the earth and failed in his quest or the the command that he had to fill the earth with God's glory, our Lord Jesus, as the new Adam, died for sin and was resurrected and entered into the new age and brought the new age to bear upon this world. And he will fulfill completely that mandate of a restored earth and we populating that earth to his glory and honor. And so this is, this is the whole view of this world uh, that It is our home. What we say when we talk about being uh, 
aliens of this world and pilgrims of this world. World, in that sense, has a more narrow view. It's the idea of we're in the world of people that oppose God. As it says uh, several times, the God of this world, and that refers to Satan. Well, he's not the God of creation, but he's the God of all of those who oppose God. Okay? He's the ruler of all who oppose. It says the whole world lies in the hand of the evil one, John says in John, 1 John 5. Well, it doesn't mean, that doesn't mean the whole world is not in God's hands. It's in Satan's hands. But it does mean in a frightening way that all of those who oppose God are in the hand of the evil one. The whole world lies in his hand. He is their God. He is at work in them, Paul says in Ephesians 2. That's why living in this world of those who oppose God, we are aliens. We are pilgrims. We don't fit. We don't belong in that society. We're in a different society. And yet, who is it that inherits the earth? It's God's people that inherit the earth. Who's going to be evicted from this world? It's all those who oppose God that will be evicted off the property. So... To keep things in perspective, yes, we're pilgrims. Yes, we're passing through in terms of ungodly society. But in terms of ownership of this world, in terms of who will inherit and have an everlasting inheritance in this world, sadly, it is the ungodly that are passing through in that sense and that will eventually be removed and cast into the outer darkness. So this is our context. It's our context in understanding this world and its importance. And so it was said many times to me in early years, Jordan, there are only two things. One guy would say it and he'd always say it with his eyes squinted like this. You know, he'd say, there are only two things that last in this world. The word of God and the souls of men. And you know, I, when I first heard it, I thought, that's it. That's it. That's the only two things that will last. The word of God and the souls of men. It wasn't even the bodies of men. You know, it was the souls of men somehow. Now I have to say, no, this world, this whole world, it's going to have a death and resurrection of sorts like we will. There is some discontinuity as we see in passages like 2 Peter 3 that speak of the consumption of the world and the new heavens and new earth being brought forward. But you can see here in the passage, Romans 8 here, creation itself is being set free from its bondage. It's not being replaced. It's being set free. It will be restored. It is groaning in the pains of childbirth, and it will be set free. So this is an important perspective both to think of the final restoration that involves all of creation. It involves our body, our full humanity. And that's a different picture than we're just going to try to get through things and get off this earth and be done with it and be done with our bodies and get into heaven. Just two different conceptions. One is kind of pagan and more than we think. 
And one is a denial of this creation. Another is seeing this creation from the standpoint of God's redemption, that it's owned by God and will be redeemed by God. All right, so this overall, the certainty of final restoration of all things, that is what we pray for when we say, thy kingdom come. That is the ultimate fulfillment of that prayer. Lord, thy kingdom come. May your kingdom so manifest itself in this world that every single individual in this world is given up to your will and made perfectly conformable conformable to your will so that your kingdom has fully manifested itself in the earth. It's spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 15 where it says, he must put all of his enemies under his feet and his last enemy that he puts under his feet is death. And so at that point, when every enemy is gone, including death, then we can say the kingdom has finally come in its fullness. And yet, and here's the second point, this final kingdom that we pray will come has already come in one sense. You see, the Jews thought it would be like this. Here's the old age. They thought that the new age, would there would be a clean break. So that when this one ended, see the ending of my fingers and beginning of these fingers, that it would be no more. And this would be the beginning of the new age. But we find out when Jesus comes that it doesn't look like this, but it looks like this. Okay? So you see there's an overlap. That the new age has jutted into the old age. And even though the new age has come, the old age continues for a while. Now, at the end of these fingers, okay, that's the end. That's when Jesus comes again. That will be the complete end of the old age. But you see, the new age continues. Imagine my elbow going out 100 miles. Okay, that way, (laughs) whatever. But you see how there's this amazing overlap. And if you do it like this and you create a line here and here, there's a kind of a box. Or you could draw two concentric circles, the old age and the new age. New age budding into the old and there's this uh, color. Say this one's red and this one's blue. There's this purple color that we're in right now. And you've heard many times the idea of it's the now and the not yet, right? The age, the new age is here. It really is here. And we're living in it and we're manifesting it. We're part of the kingdom because God, the kingdom means it's those who are being ruled by God's grace and redemption. That's the kingdom. And then the kingdom has its influence. It has its impact as we, as members of the kingdom, butt up against those who are not members of the kingdom. But there's some things that we need to make clear as we talk about this fact that the kingdom has come, but it's not completed, right? So that, so that we're experiencing the kingdom, we're experiencing new life in Christ, but we struggle hugely against sin still. We are grieved by the evils of this world. And so a few questions need to be asked and answered. How does it function in this world? What can we expect to happen as we're in this world, because our whole 
talk about reaching out is moving out into this world and affecting this world for Christ. So here's our context. There's this final coming of the kingdom, final restoration of all things. But that final restoration, in a sense, has jutted into the present. And so we have this mix of experiencing redemption in the kingdom and being members of the kingdom but we're living in the midst of the continuing old kingdom that, or old age that will only end at the coming of Christ Jesus. Well, because of this certainty of the final restoration, but the present of uh, the kingdom now, we must live in what we could call faithful presence as those who are members of this new kingdom. Faithful presence. Now, the, there, there's some talk, and I don't know how many of you have read about kingdom uh, thinking one way or another, but uh, one of the dangers of thinking about the kingdom can run this way, that everything we do, for instance, everything we do in the city, uh, everything we might do in terms of mercy and justice, are, is mixed up with the actual work of people coming to know Jesus Christ. And let me just illustrate this in terms of the Jeremiah passage that we really hold to and, and think is so important for our, our life as a church. Jeremiah 29.7 was written for the uh, Israelites who are now being exiled out of uh, Israel and are going to be scattered in the nations. And so... In this passage in Jeremiah 29, 7, uh, God says this. Take wives, uh, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare, shalom the peace, the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, shalom, you will find your welfare. Now we need to distinguish between ultimate and absolute shalom that we have with God as those who are members of the kingdom and the temporary kind of shalom that we will manifest to others that are not part of the kingdom. And this is why this is important. Here he, he, he has this prayer, this, this command to seek the welfare of the city because this will benefit you and you will have welfare as they have welfare and, and do generally good in the city. But he says later in Jeremiah, I am bringing Babylon down in final judgment, and they will be no more. Think, that doesn't sound like shalom (laughs) for Babylon. And you see, we have to recognize that though the kingdom can have impact in non-kingdom members' lives, because they come into contact with people who are part of the kingdom and we love them and care for them and may do great good in the midst of a city and light shines forth from us because God's reign has taken it up in our hearts. We must understand that the real shalom that we want people to experience is to know this God through Jesus Christ. 
And unless they know that shalom, they don't have absolute peace. And they're not a part of the kingdom of God. We must understand that the kingdom's influence, okay, because of our membership in it and God's reign in our lives uh, will be one thing. And, and it will far outstrip the actual number of people who will come into the kingdom. That is, people will be influenced from, uh, by us and benefited by our love and concern who will not ever come to know Jesus Christ. Just like God says that he reigns his, he gives, sends his reign on those who are wicked and on those who are righteous. His goodness and kindness far outstrips and goes to all people, regardless of whether they ever submit to him. And so in a similar way, our love and concern and even the benefits that come from being around us and our participation in our society will extend further than the actual people who come to know Jesus. But you see, we have got to always see that the vital, central part of our work is what Jesus said in Matthew 28, that we make disciples of the nations, that they be enfolded in the church in baptism, and that we teach them all things that God has given us that we seek to make them mature and complete in Christ Jesus so that in turn, of course, they can live out a, a full, rich Christian life in this world. So kingdom, uh, the shalom of the kingdom or the influence of the kingdom or having a faithful presence in this world has this edge about it. It has this concern to live in a way that honors Christ and manifests Christ, always with this desire that others would come to know Christ, but loving them nonetheless, no matter what happens. Caring for them and ministering to them in these ways. Let me read a little of what uh, Kevin DeYoung says on this uh, subject. He says, and this is... uh, He talks about, as others have, there's something far worse than death and there's something far better than human flourishing. I say this because sometimes the whole of kingdom thinking can be of just alleviating suffering in this world and creating human flourishing. Okay? when, when we drift from the central cause of the gospel, the central need for people to believe in Jesus Christ, the kingdom mentality can be all about alleviating suffering and creating human flourishing. Yes, those things, yes, we want to do that. But there's something far worse than death, and that is eternal death. And there's something far better than human flourishing, and that is being brought to become a worshiper of God. Because if you have everything in this world and you don't know Christ, you don't know God, in a sense, you have nothing. You don't know anything of what it's all for and to experience it in the presence of God. That's why actually the culture and creation of this world at its best can only be fully enjoyed by Christians. And I think the primary reason, one of the primary reasons God gives all of these things is for His own people to get to enjoy it in His presence. Isn't that amazing? We benefit from all the artistic and technological uh, 
cultural amazing things that occur in our world. And we do it in the presence of God and we're the only ones. But this concern that there's something more serious than death, he talks about hell in this way. Since hell is real, we must help each other die well even more than we strive to help our neighbors live comfortably. Okay? Since hell is real, we must never think alleviating earthly suffering is the most loving thing we can do. Since hell is real, evangelism and discipleship are not simply good options or commendable ministries, but are literally a matter of life and death. So while we love people in all of these ministerial servant ways, and we must, it must, that's part of manifesting our, the reality of Christ in our lives. It's part of even the a proclamation of the gospel in the sense that we must show that it's demonstrable, right? It works. It, it's happening in our lives. We are redeemed. We're announcing a redemption that's showing itself in our lives. So it's essential for our message. So I'm not denying the importance of good deeds. They're critical. But on the other hand, how critical is it that we always realize The fundamental work, the essential thing for these poor people is that they come to believe in Jesus Christ. Piper says, uh, he talks about people who say, well, the goal of missions is more than merely escaping from hell. (laughs) John Piper says, well, there is no such thing as a mere escape from hell. Rescue from the worst and longest suffering can only be called mere by those who don't know what it is or who don't believe it's real. So, we have this faithful presence to do good with always in the back of our minds, with every person whom we love and who maybe we befriend and have a relationship for six months or a year before it kind of works itself out naturally that it's a good time to talk about the gospel. They've asked the right question or some things come up. So it doesn't mean uh, an urgency in the sense of transgressing relationship and being belligerent and and ridiculous and odious and arrogant and uh, weird and all of these things. You'll be weird anyway, of course, by being as wise as possible. But it does show that at the heart of all that we do must be this this throbbing desire to see people know Jesus Christ. This throbbing desire to see them exhibit uh, the reality of the gospel in in their lives. Um, And... I think it's important as well, and I'll I'll end here, our time's up. It's important as we minister in this world in faithful presence that we guard against words like, our goal is to transform our city. Our goal, and we'll feel like we're failures unless the kingdom of God literally takes over this kingdom, this this city uh, in that way. Our, our goal and our, our call from God is to love this city for sure. And that's why I'm talking to our session some about maybe including this in our, uh, 
our vision statement even, loving God, loving others, and loving the city. Just to give it that edge of like, we're really going to care for these people. We're really going to try to do good in this city. We're going to try to bring the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ to bear through our lives in the city. We're, so we're going to talk about that. They're like, you did? You are? <laughs> you know, but, <clears throat> but my, my point is not in any way to lessen the need for word indeed, uh, lessen the need for pregnancy lifeline or any of these things. But our goal needs to be in line with what God commands us to do, is to love people, care for people wildly and passionately and and sacrificially, and then leave these things in God's hands as to how much good is done and not to be utterly frustrated if we don't transform a city or if America doesn't become a, quote, Christian nation. These These aren't our goals. That's not what he says to do in Matthew 28. He says nothing about society in that passage. He just he says, you are to disciple people, bring them to Christ, fold them in the body, plant churches, bring them into these churches, and teach them to live out their Christian lives in all areas of their lives. That's what we're to be about. And God give the greatest impact possible worldwide. Yes. But that's, that's what we're about. That's our glorious goal. And we have this wonderful hope in the midst of seeing so much tragedy, being frustrated in so many ways in everything that we do, seeing continual evil on every hand. It gives us a realistic expectation, you see. To live in that terrible tension and the terrible loss all around us and the terrible things that we, we see happen in this world. To say, I'm to live out my Christian life fully in every way God's given me. I'm to love fiercely and passionately and sacrificially those around me. And I'm to wait for that great day when this groaning world will finally be redeemed by Jesus Christ. There is that hope, see, a glorious hope. Spurgeon pictures it this way, that all of creation is like a symphony of symphonic players. And they're sitting there and there's dust on their instruments and cobwebs and uh, strings are brittle and they hardly can make, they can kind of make music, but they don't have a conductor. And all of creation is waiting for the conductor to finally come and take the dice, take the stand. That conductor is Jesus, but we're coming with him. We're the redeemed who come with him and take the stand with him. And when we are restored, then all of creation picks up its instruments. And this glorious symphony is going to break out that will never, ever end (laughs) And we, by God's grace, are part of that. Even now, even now, manifesting the sweetness of that music and the aroma and beauty of the coming kingdom by our own lives. So we are, in our worship, as Brian said, it's a foretaste of the kingdom. But in our good deeds, in our love to others, though they may not even recognize it, It is the aroma of the kingdom that they are getting to smell. It's the beauty 
of, we're, we're like the embassy of God, the embassy that's planted in the midst of a foreign territory that shows forth the culture and beauty of this country from which it came. For our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is with God. But we are an embassy manifesting the glory of God and manifesting, anticipating what one day will envelop the whole earth. May God encourage you. (laughs) May God encourage you and me to love people with all of our hearts and to love our God with all that we have. Let us pray. Lord, we praise you and honor you that you have caught us up. You've carved us out of the mountain. You've made us precious stones and you're forming us as vessels for your indwelling and for your use. We thank you, Lord, that you allow us as part of your kingdom, as being owned by you to bear your light to this world, Lord, to represent you and to recommend you to others, Lord, to manifest in some way your glory to others and to proclaim, especially to get to speak of the beauties and wonders of this God and of his Son who came to die for sinners. Lord, we pray that the whole of our lives will be given up in the work that we do, in the enjoyment of your creation, in the legitimate enjoyment of the culture that you've given us, that all of this will be done in a way that manifests our trust in you and our adoration uh, to you. And Lord, that it will be a sweet aroma to draw others, that they will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And Lord, give us that wisdom in relationship after relationship to be able to speak of Christ to others, to be able to lay out the glory of this God. Bless us, Lord, that many, many, many people will come to know Christ, that many, many people will be brought into the kingdom and will take Christ as their king because of how you use us. We ask this for your glory and honor. Amen.